And the reading is Esther, chapter 1, reading from verses 1 to 22. And you can find that on page 501 in the Red Bibles. Or there's other Bibles in other languages, uh, versions available at the back, and the page numbers for those uh, should be on the screen. So it's Esther chapter 1, page 501 in the Red Bibles. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, and in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. <clears throat> There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink without restriction, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished." Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from the wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mehuman, Bishtha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zithar, and Karkas, to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. The king became furious and burned with anger. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meres, Marcina, and Memekan, the seven nobles of Persia and Media, and media who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. According to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Memikan replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of nobility who have heard about the Queen's conduct will respond to all the King's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Therefore, if it pleases the King, let him issue a royal decree, and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, 
All the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. The kings and nobles were pleased with this advice, so the king did as Memican proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his household using his native tongue. This is the word of the Lord. Dennis, thank you for reading that uh, passage for us. Um, Let me also say Happy New Year. That seems to be the done thing this morning by everyone up here. Or maybe I say Happy New Decade to be uh, a bit different. I hope you had a a good Christmas and everything. Uh, We're going to spend some time uh, looking at Esther 1, so shall we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, this book of the Bible, your words to us. Uh, And Lord, as we... Uh, look at that this morning. We pray that we would uh, see you, the God is in control. Amen. Well, here we are at the start of a new year. January uh, has begun. Uh, I don't know how many people have already gone back to work, how many people are going back to work uh, or study tomorrow, that kind of uh, prospect of... Um, well, I was thinking that we might be having... Uh, sort of dark, cold January mornings, but they don't seem to have arrived yet. Uh, that, that'd be quite nice if they didn't come. But, you know, that prospect of January blues, we're a f- only a couple of weeks away from what's called Blue Monday, uh, which is apparently the lowest point of people's year, uh, years. And uh, after all the excitement of Christmas, uh, and as we go back uh, towards these things, we head back towards normality. And I just want you for a moment to think about uh, that place uh, of normality for you. Where is it during the week? Where are you Monday uh, to Friday to Saturday? Is it an office? Uh, Is it a place of study? Is it your home? Just imagine that you are there for a moment. How often is God mentioned in that place? Now, if it's uh, anything like the place I used to work. Obviously, it's a bit different now, working here. Uh, but if it's anything like the, the place where I used to work, I think the only time God was mentioned was as, as a swear word. And we come here each Sunday, we're reminded of God, but where is he Monday to Saturday? Where is God in the normality of life? We're past Christmas. We're back into that normality. Where is God's? Where is he mentioned? And that's the question that this book of Esther seeks to answer. Where is God in the everyday? Specifically, how is God working to preserve and protect his people? As we had that reading, uh, as Dennis was just reading it, uh, I'm sure you noted there was the great feasts, there was the refusal of Queen Vashti, there was that ridiculous law that was uh, put in place to make husbands basically rule over wives. And there's this kind of immorality throughout Esther as we go through it uh, over the next few weeks. We will see that all over the place, and we'll have to touch on some of it as as we go along, and we will this morning. But the writer actually isn't primarily concerned with uh, with those moral issues. In fact, in many ways, I don't think he makes a judgment on them. He, he just accepts that they, they are bad. 
See, for all the drinking, all the sex, all the angry decisions, all the corporal punishment, all the compromising, all the uh, breaking of the Old Testament laws that happens throughout this book, there's a greater focus that the writer wants us to see. But it's a hidden focus. It's the focus that isn't uh, in your face. It's just there in the background. See, if you've never looked at the book of Esther before, the most surprising thing isn't the immorality that goes on. The most surprising thing is the hiddenness of God. See, in this book of the Bible, God is not mentioned once. He doesn't speak. He doesn't do a mighty act. His name is not even mentioned. It's kind of like he's not there. Kind of like maybe your uh, office is, or your place of study is Monday to Saturday. And yet, as we read the book uh, of Esther, and I encourage you to do it this week. Uh, It doesn't take long. It's a great read. Uh, You can do it in a lunch break uh, or something like that. It's it's a real fascinating read. And uh, as you read it, you'll see that there's none of these great acts of God that perhaps we see in other books. No great voice from heaven. But yet, as as you read it through, and it's worth reading it to get the big picture... There's too many coincidences, too many uh, reversals of fortunes, too many uh, events that uh, come together that we can say that this is just an accident. There is God in the background controlling all. That's why we've called uh, this series The Silent Sovereignty of God. He's there in the background controlling everything, even when he's not mentioned. And that begins right here in the first chapter. I hope you still got Esther uh, chapter 1 over in front of you, page 501. Because in the foreground of that chapter, we had King Xerxes. We had him displaying uh, his power, trying to keep his power. But in the background, there's someone with far more power, someone who's in control. So let's uh, have a quick look through uh, this chapter. So let's start uh, with seeing King Xerxes displaying power. That's in verses 1 to 8. Have a look at, at verse 1. This is what happens during the time of King Xerxes. The, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citizel of Susa. Now, as we, as we read the opening that the writer wants to see we are in a clear point uh, in history. Xerxes is ruling the Persian Empire. Uh, It's the largest uh, empire in the ancient Roman world. And and at this point, we're we're almost at the apex of it. 127 provinces that he is ruling over. This is a big, powerful empire. And it's got a big, powerful ruler. Xerxes means, uh, in Greek, ruling over heroes. He had risen to power. He inherited uh, the empire from his father, Darius I, and no one had questioned his position. He was the powerful ruler. And worldly speaking, at at this point in history, he couldn't have had more. He had it all. Now that's in contrast to God's people, the Jews, at this time. They couldn't have had less. 
See, this is the, the point in their history, which is, is long be- after the high point uh, of uh, King David. They have, uh, we've come a long history. They have been, uh, the kingdom be separated. They've been taken off into exile first uh, by the Babylonians, and the Babylonians have been taken over by the Persians. And so this puts us in about the year 483 BC in a, with God's people in a foreign land under foreign rule and probably wondering, where is God in this? And with that context, we come and see what Xerxes is like. See, he isn't worried about such things of where God is. All he's concerned about is showing off his wealth. Look at verse 3. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces they were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. Now, Sarah was saying, uh, King Xerxes is not the type of guy who's making New Year's resolutions to lose weight uh, and to do more exercise, is he? He's doing the exact opposite. He throws this six-month party, a banquet for all the important people. I am going to show you how great and powerful and wealthy and successful I am. Verse 4, displaying the the vast wealth, splendor, and glory. You know, there's no doubt, if you came to the party, who was the man in control? Who was the powerful ruler? And he's carefully, I think at this stage, he's carefully bringing in all these noblemen because he's, he's planning his next great conquest, his next great display of power. Okay, this is the man. And if you're in any doubt... The writer wants to make sure you don't miss it because after six months uh, of one party, he then throws another party. Seven days for all the people in the city, from the least to the greatest. And do you see uh, in verses uh, five to eight how it's described? It's got the finest decoration, the, the finest tableware, the finest wine of which there was no limit. All the stewards gave everyone as much as they wanted, it says in verse 8. It's described in great detail by the writer. So you don't miss the point. He is the man. He has the power. He has control. Here is a king at the height of his success. And he can show it off. The money, the glamour, the power. It's over the top and deliberately so. He has everything in his control. Or at least he thinks he does. Because the next bit, verses 9 to 12, shows King Xerxes losing power. See, Xerxes has a, a beautiful queen, Vashti, and she's also throwing a party for the women in verse 9. Uh, and while that party is in full swing, uh, the eunuchs from Xerxes arrive to take Vashti off. The king, who... Uh, let's face it, is completely wasted, uh, has called for his wife to come off and then bring in, show off her beauty, his trophy wife. But what happens? Verse 12. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. 
And we're not told why Queen Vashti refused to come. Um, there could be a whole host of reasons. Commentators kind of try and speculate. Uh, is she being stubborn? Uh, does she know the sexual degradation that would have happened if she had gone along and so she refuses to go? Uh, the fact is we don't know. And it's one of the reasons, I think, that this book is uh, primarily not concerned about those Im- immorality issues that are going on. It doesn't matter why she didn't go. What matters is the fact that she didn't go. Because that sparks off a whole chain of events uh, that's going to lead to God's people being protected uh, and preserved. But we'll come to that uh, a bit later. See, the other thing that this uh, also shows is that even the greatest and the most powerful people in the world can't control everything. Xerxes uh, thought he'd just call his wife and she'd come running. But she made her own decisions. And suddenly there's a chink in the armour of the control of that great king. So even the most powerful people in the world can't control everything. You may look at the, the, the CEO of your company Uh, and think that she or he uh, controls the whole company. You may look at King Jong-un and and think he controls all of North Korea. You may look at President Trump and the supreme leader of Iran and wonder who's going to end up with the control. But none of them are actually going to have ultimate control. No human can. In fact, the wisest wisest leaders know that. And it's a lesson that King Xerxes needed to learn. But he doesn't. You see, instead of learning his lesson, he attempts to regain control, regain his power. Uh, That's in verses 13 to 22. See, while presumably they're they're nursing some pretty sore heads, uh, the king calls in his closest, his wisest men and asks them what they should do. Look at verse 15. According to law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Now, these wise men are worried. What the queen has done is going to become known. Uh, and if a queen can get away with disobeying the king, well, well, then surely our wives can get away with disobeying us. So one of these kind of supposedly wise men comes up with a new law. Verse 19. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. Great idea, they all think. Bunch of blokes sitting around. Great idea. A king issues this decree. No, every part of the kingdom. Basically meaning husbands are legally allowed to rule over their wives as slaves. Verse 22, 
He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to every province in its own script, and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household, using his native tongue. King Xerxes sit back and thinks, now everything is in place. Things are back where it should be. Husbands ruling wives and me ruling the lots. My power is back. But it's a ridiculous law, isn't it? If you think about it, like uh, just on a purely practical level, how would you manage a law like that? But it's a ridiculous law. This is actually just a king trying to grasp at power, trying to grasp at that control that he doesn't want to lose. Uh, and actually, as we read it now, it just makes him look like a bit of an idiot. But I think that's exactly what we're supposed to think. See, here's a power-crazed king, and we're supposed to see it's a bit ridiculous. He can't control everything. Not like that. It's not for a human to control like that. It's over the top, and deliberately so. Now, at this point, I just want to pause for a second because I want to anticipate a question that might be coming through some people's minds uh, as we talk about uh, husbands, uh, ruling wives. Uh, If this question hasn't come into your minds, then I'm about to put it there, uh, so apologies. But how does this kind of relate to what the New Testament talks about, uh, wives submitting to husbands? I think that's kind of... Again, a few, que- uh, few people think, yeah, if you, certainly if you read a passage like Ephesians 5 uh, and hear some people's comments on it, you would think that these are exactly the same kind of things as wives uh, submit uh, to husbands. But actually, I want you to just, uh, we're not going to be able to go into all the details of that, but I want to show just briefly there's a whole world of difference um, between those two passages and what those two things are talking about. It's kind of difference between light and dark. See, King Xerxes issues a law that basically makes women slaves to husbands. Uh, he had expected that Queen Vashti would do that. Uh, he had expected that uh, he could have the power. And so he makes this rule true for the whole of the empire. He demands respect. But it's a, a respect of inequality. Husbands are ruling over wives. Now, Ephesians 5 is completely different. It's not a demanded respect, it's an earned respect. See, there's a a wife who willingly submits to a husband because a husband is loving her in a same sacrificial, unconditional way that Christ loves the church. And if that's the case, then it's easy for submission to happen because the husband is acting in a way where a wife wants to submit. One scholar puts it like this. Uh, and I don't know who wrote it if you want to come and ask me later because it's a kind of one of these anonymous quotes because he doesn't want to be named. I don't know why. I believe in a wife submitting to her husband. But I don't believe the husband ever has the right to demand it. In fact, I know that when I am worthy of submission, my wife submits. And when I am unworthy of it, she does not. My responsibility as a husband 
is to be worthy. Do you see the difference between that and King Xerxes? He is not being worthy of any submission. As Christians, if you're a husband here, you are to be so loving your wife that she is willing and wants to submit. You are laying down your life for her. Now, I know this is going to raise more questions than we can have time to deal with here. Uh, and I don't, uh, we could get into a big debate on what submitting, uh, husband Smith's wife means. We don't have time. But can you at least see the massive difference, the light and dark comparison between uh, what Xerxes is doing in Esther 1 uh, and what Paul talks about in the New Testament? One is about control. One is about inequality. The other is about love, respect, equality, service. Service and submission to Christ. They are vastly different things. If you want to talk more about that, I'm happy uh, to do so afterwards. We need to come back to Esther 1 because that's where we are. Uh, So back to Esther 1 and this ridiculous new law. Um, and, And as we look back over uh, Esther 1, is, is it a bit surprising that actually this book of the Bible uh, starts focusing on this power-crazed king? Why not start by telling us what's going on with the Jews uh, in this period of exile? Why not, why not start by introducing our, our heroine that's going to come, Queen, uh, Esther? But actually, I think this is all very deliberate by the author. He wants us to see this power praised king with this lavish displays of wealth, with his attempts to keep control, because he wants us to ask the same question that we may ask on Wednesday afternoon in our office. Where is God in this? Now we need to see the rest of the story uh, of Esther to see how this unfolds, how the whole chain of events works so that God can protect and preserve his people. But there was already a clue, even in this verse chapter. Look at uh, the end of verse 19. Also let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Someone else who is better. Now the ironic thing is, that obviously the noblemen, when they're coming up with this law, you know, when they're thinking of someone uh, better, they're thinking of someone perhaps more beautiful, as we'll see next week, or someone who they can control, unlike Vashti. But God has other plans. He's going to send someone better. Someone who will do something greater than even the great king Xerxes. You see, through all these morally questionable decisions, through these foreign rulers, through these ridiculous laws that passed, God is going to raise up a new queen. One who works for his people. One who will preserve and protect his people. One who will be the center of a chain of events that shows there's someone even more powerful and more in control than King Xerxes, a powerful king of the largest powerful empire. See, where is God? He's there, in the background, 
controlling the events. The silent sovereignty of God. It may have seemed that King Xerxes was the most powerful person in total control. It may seem today like some world leader is the most powerful person. Some uh, CEO of some huge company is the one that controls. And yet, the writer wants us to look at these people and say they can't be fully in control. They never can be. The more they try, the more they try in fact, the more ridiculous they look. See, throughout history, no matter how powerful, how controlling a person comes, there's always someone in the background in total control. His name may not be mentioned, but that doesn't mean he's not there. God is always there, preserving and protecting his people. He did it through Esther, as we'll see as we go through in the next few weeks. He continued uh, that line of his people so that from his people, Jesus could come. And if we want to see the ultimate example of God working to preserve and protect his people, then we look to Jesus. It's in him that we are all here today. And that continues today. That work of preserving and protecting people continues. Paul writes uh, in Romans 8, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. God is working so that we are glorified. It may not be obvious to us as we sit in the office uh, on a Wednesday afternoon. I'm sure it wasn't obvious to Esther as uh, she heard the news of what Queen Vashti had done. But in hindsight, as we look back, as she looks back, it's clear it's there. God's silent sovereignty. It's all over the book. It's all over our lives. uh, Don't forget that between the great uh, acts of power and the great speaking of God, there's often many years of normality. Many years where nothing seems to happen. Insignificant events. Just like we have an example of here in Esther. Just as our lives might feel as we go back to work in January. But God's no less in control. He is no less in control of normality as he is in the big events. So it may not seem like God is doing much today. It may not seem, uh, it may seem like some human, as we look, read the news or something, has all the power, all the control. But it's not the case. God is there working in the backgrounds to preserve and protect you. That's where he is Monday to Saturday. Even if he's not mentioned in your office, he's there with you, preserving and protecting you. And hopefully that gives you encouragement to go back to work tomorrow. God is there, silent but sovereign. 
Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, as we look at our lives, it's uh, often difficult in the moment to see how you're working. Uh, Often we can only see it as we look back in hindsight. So thank you for this book of Esther that gives us uh, that opportunity to look back and where you've seen silent. It is clear you are not. You are there working in the background. As we go through Esther, give us confidence in that truth and give us confidence that is true for every aspect of our lives today as well. Amen.